Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and I'm joined in the studio now by a working-class Seb Stafford Bloor. It's Jonathan McKenzie. Hi, John. All right, Gavna. <laughs> oh, good Lord. That's no, that's no. Don't appropriate, please. Okay. Come on now. Um, welcome to today's podcast. We, of course, are joined by normal upper-class Seb Stafford Bloor as well. Hi, Seb. How are you? Authentic Seb Stafford Bloor. I'm very well. Thank you, Joy. Good. Well, it's lovely to hear that your gates are good. There's so much to discuss today. Uh, various transfers have taken place. We'll be talking about Gabriel Jesus, Calvin Phillips. We're going to return to the, the topic of Sadio Mane to Bayern as well. Slight tweak on the conversation we had there last week. References perhaps to Roberto Firmino. There's a Martin Hinteregger, Hertha Berlin. Yes, well, I mean, that snuck in there. Didn't see that one before. <laughs> Athletic Bilbao and the presidential race. That one was interesting. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about Bielsa and Valverde as it relates to that bit of news. And if we have time, the future of Dean Henderson, Gareth Bale joining LAFC, Wayne Rooney uh, leaving Derby. Goodness me, there's been a lot, hasn't there? Taiwo. Awanii. How do you say that name? Awanii? Awanii? Taiwo Awanii has joined Not Nottingham Forest, I believe, as their record signing. So that's exciting. And, of course, Charlie de Catalara. Close. Uh, close. You say it for me, John. Charlie de Catalara. Charlie de Catalara. Okay, there we go. Is uh, Had been linked to Leeds United and is a player of whom I've heard much tell. And so I'm excited to hear a little bit a bit more about, about that player as well, whether or not he does, in fact, join Leeds. But if you like Leeds, then you should follow The Athletic because they do have the best Leeds guy out there in Phil Hay. I'm sure everyone knows about Phil Hay. One of my favourite inside stories when I first joined The Athletic a couple of years ago is, uh, you know, the, coming from the outside in, I'm sure you guys will, uh, will appreciate all these big name journalists around to people to get excited about, oh, I've seen that person on Twitter, you know, you're David Ornstein's Allah. But the name, or one of the names that was repeatedly on the tongue of very senior American executives in a, a supremely complimentary way was, uh, was Phil Hay. <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, people love Phil Hay and Phil Hay is great. Just one of the great things about being here at The Athletic, that they have great people for all different things. Visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. For Phil Hay and more, uh, I think you can get a 30-day free trial to try Phil Hay for free. So give that a go. But anyway, with all that out of the way now, I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of Charlie de Catalara. <laughs> Gabriel Jesus to join Arsenal. Here's an interesting one. Uh, interesting insofar as hadn't heard a peep about it before it happened. That's not true. It was uh, heavily rumoured for a long time, John, wasn't it? £45 million, according to David Ornstein. We will talk a little bit more about that fee later and, and maybe its implications because it's fairly hefty. But for Gabriel Jesus, a player of peak age, a player coming from Manchester City, it seems like it could go one of two ways. Where's he actually going to 
play because yeah. I, I still don't really know what it what it is he does best. It feels like it would be a, an interesting moment in football tactics with respect to nines because everyone talks about false nines these days. I mean, obviously when Pep Guardiola does something, everyone thinks there must be a good reason for doing this and it has sort of been the tendency to, to reflect that in terms of the way that you play your number nine. But I think in the last few seasons, there's been a lot of clubs who've been looking for nines. Mm. So Arsenal last summer, I think it was, were were uh, linked with Vlaovic who eventually went to Juventus and I guess the, the the issue is is that if you want a sort of strong nine who you can be convinced is going to score you a lot of goals you're in a small market and you're going to pay a premium on it and it feels to me almost as though Arsenal have been like if we mess around like we did last summer in the transfer window we may end up again without having a, a nine and I think that probably would have made a big difference to mm. them last season so seems as though that's the, the, the general way that it's going but obviously Gabriel Jesus has been played wider and wider during his time in, in mm. Manchester so Well he started wide didn't he when he first arrived with the thought that he was going to end up uh, more central uh, he never really had too many opportunities to do that a bit when Aguero uh, was was uh, starting to wane or was being played less at least and then left mm. there were a few opportunities for him in the centre but there was this moment I think at the beginning of this season or it might have been the end of last season when he suddenly played wide right again and was fantastic and, and you know showed his ability as a crosser I think people sort of started to think well maybe he just should be out there yeah, there are some forwards who I think do thrive in, in wider areas. I've just put out a video this morning on Lukaku and one of the big takeaways from that is that Inter, he was allowed space in the wide areas on the right-hand side and he really thrived in those kind of areas. Charlotte de Catelar is someone we're going to talk about later on, is another forward who likes to drift into those wide areas and, and get space. And I think Michael Cox points out in his article about Gabriel Jesus this morning about the fact that there, there are a lot of wide positioned goal mm. scorers now in the Premier League so mm. I think he mentions Son Heung-min he mentions obviously Mohamed Salah and what we've seen from Salah this season is that he's moving wider and wider he's allowing space for, for Trent Alexander-Arnold or the right hand side midfielder whoever that is to get into that space as well so the idea that if you are bringing in a goal scorer that you need to play them centrally I think is, is being debunked mm. um, but at the same time I, th I think in the Arsenal system it does very much look like Gabriel Jesus is going to be played centrally uh, because they've got decent options on either side really and they are talking about bringing in more as well yeah I mean Rafinha is another player that, that has been uh, rumoured to be discussing with Arsenal at the moment as well uh, okay Seb on the fee itself 45 million pounds I mean two ways of looking at this one that's a fine price for for a player from uh, such a such a team as Manchester City a player with the quality that we know Gabriel Jesus to have the other way of looking at it is that it's a lot of money and if Arsenal don't you know make the most of it it, it could be a bit problematic couldn't it it could do. It is a lot of money, but it feels like something they have to do. I think if, I think if they invested in that nine position in January and got a proper goal scorer, I think they'd have walked the contest for top four and they'd be in the Champions League now. I think the Champions League issue does make it a little bit, at least feel a little bit more risky because you're not going to get too many chances to invest that heavily in that position. Also, it's quite an unusual situation because how often is someone of Gabriel Jesus's calibre actually available? How often would a club like Man City have the opportunity a to sign Erling Haaland and kind of lock out their nine position for the foreseeable future and then be willing at a reasonable price to allow someone like Jesus to go it's kind of a it's one of those where the kind of the, the chips have fallen away which means you just got to capitalize on it and you just got to pay the fee but at the same time for Mikel Arteta it feels like you're kind of pinning him and Jesus together in the sense that their futures are now entwined in the, in the way that like if it doesn't go well 
this becomes, if it goes well, this becomes a great success of his era. He's kind of unlocked Gabriel Jesus. He's got the kind of, he's, he's, he's figured out the riddle because he is a little bit like that. He's confusing as a player, as a goal scorer. If it doesn't go well, then it becomes a big asterisk, a big kind of blotch on a CV just because you don't, as a young manager, you don't get the chance to spend that kind of money without repercussion. So it has to go well, really, for him, I think. Well, it sounds Ooh, like one, a, one issue. I just want to ask John something, though, yeah, before ahead. we move on, just because I'm really glad you brought up Vlaovic, because it's strange that we're led to believe that Arsenal were all in for Vlaovic. They very much wanted him. Whether they actually had a chance to get him, I don't know. But it seems strange to me that within the space of 12 months, your ideas around the nine slot have gone from Vlaovic to Jesus, who are so different. Like it, I, I love Vlaovic, but in terms of his link-up players passing, it's kind of basic. It's fine. But Jesus is a very different player. I don't, I don't understand what's happened in that team to kind of change everybody's mind. Sometimes we're a bit narrow and prescriptive, though, aren't we? When we talk about football and the systems that a coach likes to play, we think that how could they possibly ever change their mind? But isn't one thing that we discover about transfers every summer that a lot of it is about opportunity? Yeah, and I think the way that Arsenal are playing now is very different to the way they were playing at the end of last season as well, which I think probably comes into it. It's also worth mentioning that Mikel Arteta knows Gabriel Jesus well because he was the assistant manager under Pep so he's, he's worked with him so he will be aware of what it is that he will bring so yeah whether or not it was Arteta who was actually in for Vlaovic in the first place is another mm-hmm. question as well it may be the case that Arteta would rather have a striker like Gabriel Jesus and with Jesus coming up he then has the option to say this is a player I've worked well with and I think he does a lot of the things that we want from our system as well so yeah there's a lot of context there I think mm. Okay. Well, there we go. That's Gabriel Jesus. I'm excited to see how he fits in. And also, I'm excited to see him play every week because I feel like uh, we haven't had that before. It's another example of one of, the, of what we talked about last podcast, which is Premier League sides selling to one another, top Premier League sides selling to one another. And I think that there's going to be a load of interesting transfers this summer where we're going to be able to see players that maybe people have pigeonholed in a certain way playing in a different system in the Premier League which I think puts them in the in the public eye a little bit more as well so mm-hmm. I mean Sterling as well I think is going to be another player like that we've we've seen Sterling play in very specific systems what's he going to look like in a, in a different system at Chelsea as well so I think there's going to be some pretty fascinating transfers that are done in that respect that's true like a good example of that from the past would be uh, when I heard that Tadic was playing as false nine in that in that mm-hmm. brilliant Ajax team I thought huh is this the same yeah, Tadic yeah, that yeah, I yeah. saw at Southampton? That can't be you. It can't be true. So no, that, that is, that is a, it's a curious quirk of this summer. Hopefully we'll all learn something. Calvin Phillips to Manchester City. Interesting move for Phillips, this one. It makes sense for Pep Guardiola, who's a huge uh, admirer, John, of Marcelo Bielsa. But there are examples of players, uh, Bielsa players becoming Guardiola players in the past where things haven't necessarily quite worked out so well. And despite the fact that Guardiola is a huge admirer, what his teams do on the pitch is quite different to what Bielsa's teams do. Yeah, I think actually the, the pivot player performs a very similar role in both teams. I think what's different is that one team is is very dominant and, and the other one less so in the Premier League. Mm. Obviously in the Championship, Leeds were, were pretty dominant and they were dominant in the way that Manchester City teams are as well. So... There's definitely a case that, that Phillips can play in that in that sort of role. But yeah, the, the single pivot in a Bielsa-Guardiola system is very much a defensive player, mm. really. I think Rodri has a lot more to his game probably than, than Phillips in terms of on-ball stuff. But Phillips is much better than him off the ball. Yeah. For Bielsa, he's probably a lot more gung-ho in getting his players forward. And when you have 
the talent discrepancy that, you, that exists between Leeds players and City players, that means that you do have the, the possibility of being counted on. So Calvin Phillips was pretty much a mobile athletic player who was expected to get around the pitch and break down opposition counterattacks. Now we've seen City do have that as a problem and particularly in the Champions League where they're not going to be as dominant as they are in the Premier League. And so the suggestion is, is that Phillips, Phillips has been brought in to be able to play that kind of defensive destroyer role. Mm. I suppose the, the question for me is like, how many games is that really going to be a position that Pep Guardiola wants filling? And there's been people discussing whether or not we might see a double pivot of Phillips and Rodri, but I, I, I'm not sure that I can see that happening in games that aren't, as we've talked about, like playing against Real Madrid when you're a goal up and, yeah. you, and you just want to see out the game. As we saw Fernandinho being brought on in those games and and obviously got done for the Vinicius Junior goal. Mm. Um, but yeah, for me, the, the interesting question is how is he going to be used outside of those sort of crunch game pressure moments where you want to make sure that you're doing everything you can to avoid being counted on mm. maybe this is a stupid question but uh, Bielsa is famous for man to man marking system or player to player I should say marking system does that not become integral to everything you do as a player like I'm thinking when Calvin Phillips arrives at Manchester City how much do you have to fight the instinct to chase the same player around the whole time because that's not what City do yeah and there's a uh a section in Pep Confidential, a book about Pep Guardiola's time, particularly at Bayern, I think it was, where it talks about Javi Martinez, who obviously moves from uh, Bielsa's Bilbao uh, side into Bayern, and he really struggles with the zonal marking system as a mm -hmm. result. Um, I think that will probably be, um, could potentially be an issue, yeah. But I think for Phillips, I mean, Phillips is, is athletic enough and mobile enough that he will get away with some of that stuff in a way that I don't think Javi Martinez will do. Now, that's not to say that Pep Guardiola will be happy if he's positionally sloppy, mm. um, but he, he'll, he'll probably be able to make up for mistakes in a way that, that Martinez, uh, Martinez couldn't. But yeah, it will definitely be an issue, I think, that will be needed to, to work on. And it, yeah, there's a reason why players going into Guardiola teams do take a little while to fit in, and that is because the system is over everything and you can be a brilliant individual. And it's one reason why actually, to go back to Gabriel Jesus, it's hard to read Guardiola players because there's a sense in which you don't see the sorts of individualism that we see from, other, from in other teams mm -hmm. that often people base their opinion on whether or not a player is a baller or not. So yeah, we could see Gabriel Jesus go to Arsenal and ball out. We, we've seen Jack Grealish ball out at Villa and, and then go to Manchester City. And despite putting up really good numbers and that's, obviously what Guardiola cares about but I think a lot of people have been like well he's, just, he's not really succeeded as well as we expected him to do in those teams as well so I'm sure there'll be a betting in period for Phillips too mm. 40, 42 million I think potentially going to rise to, to 45 Seb one way of looking at it is I suppose that uh, the Gabriel Jesus money is just paying for Calvin Phillips but do you think this is a lot of money to spend on a player who almost certainly will be a backup yeah it is but again to go back to a theme that we've introduced before, like this is going to be, we think, an era of specialisation. So if, I mean, John kind of hit the nail on the head by saying, right, well, you buy a player for a very specific moment within your season when um, the situation within a game means that you need a very, very particular type of player. Now, if that need is great, and if you exist at the very top of the game, and if your resources are such that it doesn't really make that much of a difference contextually, then it doesn't really matter how much you spend because it's all proportionate to kind of the criticism that you receive. If, if you think about every Manchester City season being determined as a success or a failure depending on whether they win the Champions League, yeah. well, if 42, 43 million, however much the, the fee rises to or it, you know, it's guaranteed, 
um, what's the difference really um, for a club like Manchester City? It's what you need to have. And if you're going to go on that journey, um, it's kind of silly not to take the tools that you're going to need with you. So, um, yeah, of course, um, that comes with all the caveats about English tax. Uh, the Bielsa thing makes me feel uneasy because to me, Phillips is, I mean, maybe Bielsa creation feels a little bit unfair. But that is how he feels to me. Like, I don't know what he looks like without Bielsa because... He's Bielsa refined, isn't he? Well, also, he had that injury last season, which meant that Leeds were without him for much of the campaign. Um, I don't feel like he's returned to full fitness. Like, the England game he played in the, in the Nations League was a catastrophe um, against Hungary. It was absolutely dreadful. Um, so what is this player without a manager? We've seen this before. Like, I always think a little bit of... Um, of uh, I don't know the relationship between um, Deli Ali and Maurizio Pochettino. You take that away, mm. um, you take away someone who is determined to use a player in a very specific way, or um, is has their loyalty, or uh, you know, is, it kind of has that sort of uh, little, almost like uh, father, not father son, but like a, a, a patron kind of relationship with. A bit um, like if you had to go and work somewhere else for, for another person who, who is, is that sort of what you're saying, Seb? Like, you know, because we have a kind of father and son type relationship, don't we? You respect me paternally. I chastise and punish you as you're a child. A, you're a good hugger. Do you, you use what you're saying? Like if you I went to a different you. place, you'd, you'd struggle to adapt to go and work for Pep Guardiola, let's say. Well, you, the thing is, is that if that happened to me, I'd probably I'd walk through the new office on day one and, and just go for the hug. like always do with you. And then, you know, and that would probably be a little bit awkward. And then it would, I, I suppose, sour the relationship from that point on. Seb's not a hugger. I was going to say, a, a never, big I don't think you've ever hugged me. Hmm? No, this is the thing, John. You, once you've worked for Tifa for a certain period huh? of time, he just does it all the time. He's, he's just okay. a, he, he's a pathological hugger. Yeah, if anything. <laughs> I've got big arms. <laughs> he has a very, very big body as well. It's like you're being engulfed. It's, yes. it's kind of scary in a way but then that's part of it it's like a, there's a jeopardy situation to it it's, there's a bit right. of jeopardy there's some yeah. calm you, you know, resist and will, will you, I suffocate you know, you know is this is this affectionate or is he am I being punished for something you know there's all kinds of possibilities sure yeah yeah but Calvin Phillips um, <laughs> and that oh, that's the fit you, you, you displace it you, you separate those two people the manager who is responsible for bringing a player to a certain point in the game mm. and the player who has seemingly unwavering trust from his manager and you create a little bit of a question mark so that would be my only concern i guess city will look at it as if if we pay 40 million pounds and we don't concede that vinicius junior goal worth it it's worth it yeah, yeah. And i think that's probably how they will justify it that's crazy though isn't it that's crazy. Yeah, but if, you, if you think about it if you think about the things that come with city winning the champions league um legitimacy is not quite the right word um, because they're, you know, they're a mega power in the game, sure. They can never get that, yeah. <laughs> but it, I, I just mean the sense of like <clears throat> what it's worth from, you know, you, even the abstract sense. So what it's worth is a marketing proposition, what it's worth in sure, terms yeah. of what you're able to attract, what it's worth in terms of the value that it tacks on to your players should you want to sell members of your squad. Like all these little things, like within that context, 40 million pounds, not a lot of money, I don't think. No, for sure, yeah. It logically makes total sense. I think when you um, remove yourself from the situation of modern football, yeah, 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 yeah. 
obviously seems uh, extraordinary. But then, you know, Arsenal have paid the same for a, for a player who albeit will probably play a little more. It's just one of those moments where I think uh, nothing against Calvin Phillips specifically, uh, but the idea of paying over £40 million for a uh, backup player, or even if they are a specialist, it's one of those sort of, oh yeah, that's what we're all talking about here, isn't it? One of those moments. But anyway, moving on. Let's talk again about Mane, uh, Sadio Mane to Bayern Seb, because uh, whilst we discussed the, the footballing side of this transfer last week, I read a very interesting Rafa Honigstein piece on The Athletic just before the weekend, in which uh, Rafa sort of explores the idea that Bayern have used this transfer as a kind of an example of their pull and their pull within the, the league, the Bundesliga's pull. And it made me sort of, it caused me you know, to stop and think uh, with interest about how the Bundesliga sees itself in relation to the other top four leagues. Because we talk a lot about how the Premier League is, uh, you know, the biggest league, in air quotes, or the one with the greatest pull. And I think, you know, we've seen from this summer a lot, the idea of the pull of the Premier League, even to smaller teams or newly promoted teams, is very alluring to overseas players. Probably, I, I would have thought, largely because of the the salaries that they can earn here. But how, how does the Bundesliga, speaking as a man who lives in Germany now, how does the Bundesliga view this scenario? And, and, and would you say it's fair to categorise them as, as uh, being pleased to have, have signed someone of the calibre of, uh, of Sadio Mane, bringing Sadio Mane into the league? Well, it's difficult. I mean, I would separate Bayern Munich and the Bundesliga and to do different topics there. Mm -hmm. uh, Bayern Munich are very, very happy to have concluded that transfer, uh, primarily because it's there's an enormous political worth to it. So... Uh, prior to it happening, um, Hassan Salihamidzic, who is the sporting director, and Oliver Khan, who's the new chief executive, they have had a little bit of a difficult time for all sorts of reasons. The club's relationship with Qatar has been very problematic. That's more of a Khan issue. But also, they underperformed last season. Uh, I know they won in Bundesliga at a canter, but they got knocked out of the Champions League by Villarreal. Um, and they got humiliated in the Pokal by Gladbach. And these are not good things for Bayern Munich. And when that happens, you need to change the conversation a little bit. And so Mane arriving from a team coached by Jürgen Klopp. Jürgen Klopp, who is still by far the most popular manager in Germany, um, he seems to appear in three of every five adverts during, you know, football matches. He, you know, he's enormously popular. And Sadio Mane is a world-class player still. He's um, going towards the end of his 20s and he's still in his prime, but moving towards the sort of back end of his career, but he's still a brilliant player. And there's definitely a cachet to it. But to me, it feels a little bit overdone because Bayern Munich need a win. And a lot of the German papers cover, a lot of the national German papers obviously cover Bayern Munich more than any other club. And Bild, for instance, is kind of the German version of the Sun, uh, have been splashing on Mane and there's interviews with Sally Hamasic and isn't this great and Bayern Munich. And it's a strange situation because at the on the one hand, great. On the other, it kind of ignores the elephant in the room, which is the Lewandowski issue, because Sadio yeah. Mane and Robert Lewandowski are not the same player. One does not replace the other. The Bundesliga, I think, I, I was speaking to my brother-in-law um, over the weekend, and he's really excited to see Sadio Mane play, but I don't think it's, I don't think he sees it as a triumph for the Bundesliga, because you have one Bundesliga club who wins it every year, and then the others who see themselves really is selling clubs. Mm. There's this kind of tacit understanding in Germany, to me at least, that they know the place in the football world and they know the kind of the sacrifices that are being made to have football in Germany continue as it is. I mean, culturally, socially. 
I don't think there is much that binds Bayern Munich with even clubs like Dortmund. And if you look at the revenue differences, particularly commercially between a club like Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich, yes, I know that the game they play against each other in the Bundesliga, that's very hyped and it's a big deal and it feels like a title decider. These are not the same clubs at all, at all. Um, they're very, very different types of organisation in size and, you know... So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't buy the kind of great moment for the Bundesliga thing because if you think about some of the players that are in that Bayern Munich team already, these are German World Cup winners. Like, that will always, always matter in Germany more than outside players. And so, great news, because if you're losing a star, you need to replace it with one, uh, him with one. And he's a European Cup winner. He's just won the Africa Cup of Nations. Brilliant player. But I've only been in Hamburg since this happened. But I don't think the uh, streets of the rest of Germany are lined with people celebrating Sadio Mane's rival. Looking forward to playing him. Uh, well, looking forward to seeing him play, but not necessarily, um, you know, go on the Bundesliga moment. Do you think that there's a sense in which there's a bit of paranoia at Bayern that they are always buying players from within the league from the other clubs as well and so there's probably going to be a sense in which they can use this as a as an example to be like see we we do buy players from elsewhere as well 100% 100% I always think back John to the the Mario Götze moment um, when Bayern bought him and and there was that sort of, at the same time, if people remember, there was also discussion going on about Lewandowski moving from Dortmund to Bayern, which he would ultimately do. But if you remember how it worked out, Lewandowski had to wait a year because politically, you just can't do it. You can't, you can't be seen to just be snatching the pieces out of a, out of a rival side because clearly that's detrimental to the, the kind of the, the competitive balance in the league. But also it's a, it seems to diminish the success. Now, at the moment, there's, I wouldn't quite call it an existential crisis, but there is a conversation about how competitive the Bundesliga is, what can be done. People are starting to propose things. Whether anything happens, I don't know, but people are starting to be concerned about um, not just Bayern's dominance, but what Bayern's dominance says about German football and what the overall health will be and what you know the implications will be for the German national team eventually, things like that. Now, in that climate, not a good idea to go and sign, I don't know, Erling Haaland and Jude Bellingham in the same summer. I think it's a kind of a good idea also that Bayern, for once, are not shown to be punching down because Liverpool are a giant of the game. I'd say sort of especially Liverpool are a bigger club than Bayern, um, even if Bayern are kind of wealthier. So you're kind of, you're taking something from an equal rather than just nicking someone's lunch money and going, right, well, we'll have that and we're going to put it on our bench. And actually, I, I think that's another facet. When Goetz had joined Bayern Munich, a lot of people said, firstly, he's not Neymar, who was originally the, the player that Guardiola wanted, but also he's not going to play. Like, you can create a position for him and you can kind of turn him into force nine if you want, but he's not going to play. And those people are proved right. And the dynamic of taking a valuable player from a rival and sticking him on your bench and giving him, I don't know, um, maybe a thousand Bundesliga minutes in a season doesn't look very good. And it makes you an enemy. And, and whether Bayern Munich care about that, I don't know. But it allows them to celebrate something a little bit more openly because it, if it was a, a Goethe situation or if they'd taken a Bellingham or you know taken Sancho last year, then it becomes all a bit brazen, isn't it, when you're parading this new signing on the front page or the back pages of Bill and um, proclaiming it as a great moment for German football because no one's going to buy it. Um, so hugely, hugely important. Mm. Let's take a break. Yes. <laughs> what a lovely break that was. I enjoyed it myself. Firmino, here's another interesting article I read uh, on The Athletic over the weekend, John. Um, this uh, this was uh, article was uh, written by Mark Carey and Simon Hughes, or I think this bit was a Mark Carey bit, talking about uh, Roberto Firmino. He wrote about Jurgen Klopp's use of the 4-2-3-1. 
towards the end of, of last season and how Firmino had a bit of a starring role in that number 10 position. Now, lots of people, myself included, sort of had considered Firmino to be a bit of a waning force at Liverpool. And as, you know, Salah has his final year before the end of his contract and Mane leaves, you know, I thought we were sort of approaching the end of that um, in that big front three. But it seems like Liverpool could... Uh, enjoy a formational switch at times next season and maybe Firmino still has a really uh, uh, important role to play in that number 10 position. Yeah, I think a lot of this has been prompted by Carlo Ancelotti coming out after the Champions League saying that Liverpool are kind of easy to work out. It's predictable or something, Predi- didn't he yeah, say? Yeah, yeah something like to that, that effect. Yeah. And I mean, there's an extent to which that is true. I mean, if you if you look at the the, the formations that they've played in on the Jurgen Klopp, I think they've played the four three three something like three hundred times out of three hundred and fifty. Yeah, uh, they played the four two three one twenty five something like that. So that's the second highest um, used formation mm. as well. It's it's tough to read Liverpool's formations anyway. I, I did a video last week on Liverpool, and th- in certain situations they will play a four three three and drop one of their players a little bit deeper and push another one a little bit further forward. So in in possession, it will look like they're playing four two three one. Out of possession, it will look like a four three three. So yeah. it, it's worth saying that you know formations are whatever. There's not really a huge amount of point talking about them because the roles that players play within those formations is is more important. Um, but I think that yeah, the, that's one thing that's prompted it. The other is Darwin Nunez coming in because there's people asking like how you how do you use a player like Nunes in your in your front line because he is a, a little bit different from what they've had before. Mm. They've also got Mohamed Salah playing further wide as we've already said, uh, but also they brought in Luis Diaz as well who's again a, much more of a touch line hugging winger. So And they've got Diego Jota to uh, you know to yeah, make space for as well. Sure. So I, I guess it, it feels then like that there is going to be space opening up in the forward areas a little bit more for players to run into. Uh, obviously Nunez can hold up the ball and I suppose if, if you have a player like that to a certain extent then you want someone playing as a second striker dropping behind and then looking looking to run into the into the ball played back as well uh, and finding that space as well so there's plenty of options I think to now play that formation in a way that uh, maybe wasn't there as much uh, previously um, but I also do think that this probably is maybe jumping the gun a little bit to suggest that that will now become the go-to formation that, that mm-hmm. is being used so yeah we'll, we'll wait and see I suppose the big change there is playing a right-sided midfielder who can then push up into the front line because Liverpool do like to get into that 4-2-4 structure when they're attacking um, which I guess would be similar in if you're playing 4-2-3-1 and your your second strike your 10 is pushing into the front line as well you then end up with a 4-2-4 as well so mm. the question is would you would you take out a central midfielder for Firmino or or, or not would that work um, so that would be the thing to, to look out for I think it did happen in the Champions League final towards the end it did uh, but that was I think that was sort of last gasp attempt to to change things up a little bit yeah yeah okay well very interesting we will wait and see seb uh, martin hinteregger retired at 29 years old yeah uh strange old couple of weeks for martin hinteregger who's martin hinteregger he's the captain of eintracht frankfurt <laughs> okay and he was he, he was sorry yeah <laughs> right. uh, and he's had a very strange couple of weeks because prior to his announcement talking about his retirement he had been embroiled in a little bit of a controversy. So Martin Hinteregger during the um, uh, during the off season runs a, a tournament called Hinti Cup in his native Austria. Um, I think it's a, a small town. It's not like a, in a city. And a journalist found out that the land upon which this tournament was held was owned. I think I'm right in saying this by 
the family or within the family of someone who is a, a far-right politician in Austria. Now, worth pointing out that Eintracht are a very left-leaning club, and the individual about whom the article was written um, in his youth was some kind, it was part of some kind of neo-Nazi organization, was a member of it, um, not anymore, but was. And obviously that did not play very, very well with anybody, anybody in Germany anyway, but also Eintracht Frankfurt, given the kind of the ideology that surrounds the club uh, and dictates how it's run. Um, Martin Hinderger spoke about this. He kind of, he was vociferous and in kind of his condemnation of the, the link and has, uh, I'm not quite sure how, but kind of uh, changed the organization of the tournament to kind of further himself and distance himself from this individual. But yeah, as you say, he retired and he, he said some interesting things to, to Eintracht's YouTube channel over the weekend. He, he talked about how he'd been thinking about this since before Christmas. Um, he also said that during the Eintracht celebrations after the Europa League win, when they beat Rangers on penalties, he said, you know, that's why I went, I went so crazy. I just knew it was my last game. So this isn't something, well, from what he describes, this isn't something which is a decision which has been made in response to mm. what's been written. It's something he's clearly thought about, which you would expect if you retire from football at 29, that is a big, big decision. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but he also said, you know, I'm not the player I was. He was incredibly honest. He just said, I, I think, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he said that um, he, he thought he was in decline and he wasn't playing as well as he, he has done in the past and that it was time for him to, to quit. And it's stunning just because you get used to, I think, firstly, you never get used to someone retiring at 29 in, in professional football, but it's also very strange to hear somebody say, yeah, maybe I'm just not that good anymore or, mm. you know, words to that effect. And so, yeah, he's... Um, it's a shame, very, very popular player, Martin Hinderegger, especially with Eintracht fans. And I suppose a lovely way to go out is to win a Europa League and put your club in the Champions League. But yeah, strange, strange month in his life. Who was the youngest to retire, not through injury, not through forced retirement, but someone who's just gone, ah, uh, oh, done now. Eric Cantona was quite young, wasn't he? But he was 30, I think. David Bentley, pretty <clears throat> young, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he played on for a while, like... He, he just waited for his contract to expire. Like he was okay. young. Was, really was, interesting wasn't ones. he plagued by injury, David Bentley, or no? No, he just no? didn't like football. He just, he just he said he didn't find it fun anymore and, you know, etc. Yeah. Wanted to, he has some, he has a holidaying company or something in, I want to say Ibiza, I might be wrong about that, but he, Great. he had a career that he wanted to move into. I um, hope he likes that. Yeah, Harder to sure. extricate yourself from. Sure, 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 sure. A you holiday company. Can't really just say, oh, I don't really enjoy this job. I'm going to choose early retirement yeah. at the age of 36. I, I'm going to I wait really, for these houses to, to crumble to dust <laughs> and then I can leave. I really like early retirement like, in sport. Yeah. Like, I think it's so interesting the way that... The one so I'm dropping some hints. Here. Yeah. <laughs> 37 <laughs> now. I'm... I like check I, out the, the football grounds he's using. I always, always think of Bo Jackson, the running back and not by Jackson sorry Barry Sanders the running back um, Bo Jackson, Bernie Sanders Barry Sanders <laughs> Barry um, so Sanders Bo Jackson was an injury retirement he was the guy that played baseball and American football and then retired because of hip injury do you remember the Bo Nose advertising campaign no okay that was Bo Jackson Barry right. Sanders was a um, I, I don't really like American football but I do like American football history which is kind of a weird contradiction he decided uh, one off season he'd had enough wrote a letter to his local paper booked a trip to, I think, London. And then that was it. He was, I don't know how old he was. I think he was about 30, but right. had he not retired, he most likely would have broken the all-time rushing record in the NFL yeah. that belonged to Walter Payton. And then was, I think, owned sure. by Emmett Smith after that. Anyway, the point being is that I think it's a really classy thing that you do. Like you, 
you step away from it because you've just had enough and you you've done everything you want to do Mm-hmm. and you're completely satisfied and you haven't started to decline that's the important bit it's a, it's a quit while you're winning scenario 100%. which people do yeah. romanticize don't they but yeah. then often afterwards they wonder should but, they have done that but the temptation not to do it is so, so overwhelming because you think right yeah. I'm, I'm this is going to be this is a once in a life opportunity and also the career as short as it is in professional mm. sport and all professional sports and so the way you're conditioned to think is maximize it maximize it take whatever you can out of it before you go don't have any regrets so to actually to curtail a career in the professional sports voluntarily is an amazing thing it's very thing. brave it's very quite brave. funny yeah I, I spent some time this weekend with a recent retiree and uh, you know she was talking about the adjustment to retirement very complicated very yeah, complicated stuff I think you know I'm putting uh, words in her mouth now. She wasn't really saying these things, but I was I was thinking them when she was talking to me. I was thinking, well, if you, when your identity becomes wrapped up in the job that you do, which is very hard for that not to happen when we live in a capitalist system, very difficult indeed, then when you don't have that anymore, what the fuck are you? Yeah. yeah. Do you know, like, I don't know. I mean, if I retired now, I've got nothing. <laughs> Just be Joe Devine. I'd have nothing. <laughs> I'm a person who, when it gets to sort of 2 p.m. on a Sunday at the weekend, I go, what do I, what is it that I, what do I do now? Yeah. I wait for Monday to start. You know, they have that, that thing, living for the weekend. I'm living for the week. I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know what people do at the weekend. I've got nothing. So the idea of, of retiring, going from, yeah. from a scenario where you do this thing every day, and it's obviously it's different for, for sports people, as we've said, because they're all much younger, but it will have some similar psychological effects. But the idea of going from doing the same thing every day, and for what? You've considered it a few times, well, I have to pay for the house and the food, <laughs> maybe the children, you know, and then not doing that ever again. You sort of, not only do you have nothing to do, maybe, unless you're a, an accomplished hobbyist, but you also, you probably, I would imagine you spend a bit of time thinking, what was it all for? But you know? can you imagine the impact on your self-worth? Like if you, it's very hard for mm. us to relate to what it's like to be a professional footballer, but if you're used well, I to- I feel like I can relate to that. Yeah, you, yeah I mean, okay, okay, John and I, maybe not, but sure. um, your self-worth is tied up to, to something very literal, which is your performance and to mm. your value and your wages. And you step away from that and, okay, so in addition to which you're, you're suffering from most likely a big loss of income, a little mm. bit of uncertainty, your routine has been taken away from you, you walk down the street and you're treated differently because you're probably still famous, but you're an ex-player, you're not a current player, it's just different. Mm. And then on top of which, where do you go emotionally for your gratification? Like, the crowd's not there. It's very strange. It's also like, it's tied into a very serious issue in, in football, which is, not necessarily famous ex-players, but ex-players who've played like League One, League Two, who retire, they don't really know what to do. And um, mm. that's part of a conversation about whether other bodies should be helping them and directing them and, yeah. and, and, and educating them into as to how to do things like write CVs and take training courses and, you know, learn vocations, that kind of stuff. Because you used to buy a pub, didn't you? That was the thing. That's you, what you did. You would become a landlord or you yeah. would... There were players who sometimes, if players had come to the game via a trade, so if they'd been an yeah. electrician or a builder, sometimes they'd just go back to it. And they'd be sure. able to trade off a little bit of the celebrity by saying, oh, you know, um, you know, John McKenzie, like former right wing for Leeds United, he'll come around and do your plumbing. 
And that's a kind of, that's a little yeah. bit of a, you know, you'll do that now, you know, it's you very accomplished. Like in fact, I, I would like to tell people, I'm not sure how, how private John would like me to, uh, to engage with his life, but uh, John McKenzie has uh, moved into the home of Henry Cook. Henry Cook being one of TIFO's illustrators. Bit of a background figure here. Nobody likes him. But uh, anyway, John John and Henry were friends, nepotism, beforehand. And uh, John has moved in with Henry. It's just two guys having a good time. There's nothing wrong innocent with it. Innocent guys. It's just two innocent guys having a good time in their, in their 30s stroke 40s, living together. Um, dealing with lives problems as they as they come <laughs> and I think you know one of the things you've done which has been great for Henry who I know is uh, very much appreciates that you've regrouted the shower already <laughs> having only moved in to, retiled to the shower Reti- retiled there's, yeah there's, there's tiles there you go we couldn't use the shower and I was like this is not a no it's, it's not it's not sustainable shower. to not be able to so use the shower it. is it learn how to grout but this is my point Seb is you know John McKenzie already available to come around and do your plumbing if he doesn't know how how it works he'll probably learn how yeah so very famously when when Stuart Pearce um, became a professional footballer uh, Stuart Pearce qualified electrician and he used to have an advert for his electrician services don't know if it was a company but, or if he was an individual in the forest mm. program in the match day program in the early parts of his his career right um, so it's it's one of those things and now I don't know like at the top of the game you're breeding a group of people that who will never have to work again and that brings a sort of a different set of issues, but it's an issue which football actually doesn't hasn't really come up with a proper answer for yet. How it kind of resettles its ex players. Sure, Martin Hinteregger was being approached by Hertha Berlin, so probably the best time to retire. Just to, to retire. Honest. Which brings us on to our next topic. So well, it does. Before we do that, thanks for trying to force me on. I'm not ready yet. No, so <laughs> I wanted to tell people that Henry Cook. <laughs> is available to follow on Twitter. Some great tweeting, does Henry, uh, at uh, Telstar Designs. T-E-L star designs. You can follow Henry Cook, um, who I think often tweets some of the tremendous illustrations that he does, John. Yeah, he's a, a fantastic illustrator he, and he's also a fantastic bloke. So. And also Henry, Henry does listen to the podcast. So Henry, if you're listening, I think one of the things that would very much interest uh, listeners to this podcast would be if you can get any candid photos of John around the home. <laughs> I think everyone would love to see when he's not expecting it. Do, you know, make sure he's clothed. We don't want a nude John. <laughs> but candid photos of John around the, the home, uh, handyman John, yeah. you know, fixing things, uh, you know, doing the plumbing, whatever it is. Um, I think people would very much enjoy that at Telstar Designs on Twitter. Do you, do you yeah. think also that it's what's been revealed here is something quite harrowing, something that perhaps as a company we should have been paying more attention to, is that John has moved in with Henry and found this terribly harrowing environment which needs sure. fixing immediately. No, it's perfect. Before it's he's like to a, live there. It's kind of like we're getting two jobs out of John just for one salary. He Fix Henry. He's only being paid yeah. to make videos, but he is actually fixing Henry yeah, along the way. Yeah, being boosted. And, yeah, you know, and one of the other... The you know, Henry's been in the office about three times since John's arrived. It's lovely to have him around. I like it a lot. Anyway. I just live for the week, you know. You live for the week, yeah. That's it. We all live for the week here at TIFO Football The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Now, you are absolutely right, John, to, to hustle me on to to Berlin because, in fact, there's two discussions about presidents that we would like to have after this short break. What a delightful break that was. Now, let's, let's resume discussing two different presidential elections that have taken place. Uh, Seb, the first one, Hertha Berlin. 
Very uh, good a, pronunciation. Thank you. Thank I'm you. Enjoying that. Yeah. Have elected Kay Bernstein as their mm. new president, mm, former ultra Seb. Yeah, not just a former ultra. He's a former capo. So he was at one point a he capo. was the guy with the the megaphone in the crowd. You know, the, oh, the megaphone man. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. he was proper uh, ultra. Now he's got a different form of megaphone. Yeah, so he's got a, got a figurative megaphone. He has won mm. the presidential election at Hattabellen, and uh, it was big upset. I forget the, uh, his rival's name, but it was a legislator from Berlin who he was running against, and he was a heavy favorite. But Hertha Berlin, uh, Crisis Club doesn't kind of cover it because it kind of belittles Crisis a little bit. They're a basket case of an organization because oh. um, they, for a long time, well, for the last couple of years, they, they've had the patronage of Lars Windhorst, a very, very wealthy man, um, who's put in something like 400 million euros um, of his own money to try and kind of give... Berlin, the um, obviously German's capital city, the team that befitting the, the state of the city. And it hasn't worked, and it hasn't worked in all sorts of hilarious ways. It's been a disaster, full of bad appointments, bad signings, bad sell-ons, bad decisions, bad performances. They very, very nearly got relegated this season. They scraped themselves <laughs> out of the, dug themselves out of the relegation playoff. Anyway, new president has promised to kind of detoxify, his words, the club. And that's really interesting because uh, first... Uh, well, uh, day one of his job will be to kind of probably reorder th- some things at executive level, uh, kind of technical level. Um, and then Berlin, had they been facing somebody other than Haas-Vau in the relegation playoff, would surely have been relegated because they were absolutely dreadful. They got out of it, but still a lot of work to do. So it's really interesting, like whether he's going to come with new ideas. I read something in the German papers this morning. There's um, people speculating on what he's going to kind of create with his ultra pass. And they're talking about, oh, you know, Hertha Berlin Stadium will become like a cauldron full of flares and like full of life because they've kind of attached that to his personality. Mm. And also, what does this mean for, you know, what does it mean to have a president of Hertha Berlin, who's an ultra, and how will they see clubs like, uh, you know, Hoffenheim and RB Leipzig and what will they contribute to that discussion about the exemptions to 50 plus one and, and that kind of thing. So it's a really interesting time. It's a really good moment for Hertha Berlin. It feels like a back to their roots moment, but it's part of the broader discussion. So um, something to watch out for, definitely. Okay, thanks, Seb. Well, the other uh, presidential race that concluded over the weekend, John, was uh, the presidential race at Athletic Bilbao, which was quite interesting uh, for me to, to read about. I, I didn't know this before, but the, the way that the process works is that the different presidents who are running for president. They announce before they are uh, elected the coach that they would offer the job to and the sporting director and various other members of the team. And so we ended up last week or towards the back end of last week with a situation uh, where the eventual winner, who is uh, John Uriarte, I think is how you pronounce his name, his coach was Valverde. He was backing uh, Ernesto Valverde, who's been at the club twice before. But one of the other presidential potentials, who was was an outsider until the beginning of last week, when he announced that he would be backing Marcelo Biel who came along to a press conference and did a kind of a traditional Bielsa 70-minute in-depth tactical analysis of the team. So you ended up with this kind of very exciting blockbuster battle between two uh, presidents. I quite liked it as a format. I thought maybe it would be fun to have it here. Obviously, it got me in the heartstrings because it was the first public. Seb's just fallen Seb's, over. Seb's fallen over again. <laughs> Come on, Seb. Propping I know you're near retirement, I was but you do have to, to hold on to that I was stick, trying you know? to subtly slack message people, just trying to do a little bit of productivity. 
and it blew up my face and I dropped my phone <laughs> on the wooden floor and it made a very, very loud noise. And Is the phone, has it survived? No, is the phone smashed? is fine. Your no. mood has not survived because you're doing that thing where your face is kind of cheerful, but your eyes are really not at all. Yes. <laughs> You've darkened, yeah. your expression is dark. Seb knows all my faces. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the first public appearance that Marcelo Bielsa had done since he was sacked. Mm. Ignominiously by Leeds, yeah. shall we say. Um, and he looked much the better for it. He lost it. a lot of weight. Lost a lot of weight, yeah. looked happy and looked like he was enjoying life. So. Sometimes when people lose weight, it's through grief. Yeah. Do also <laughs> through joy, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, there's All lots the of different ways, isn't there? But it's just, uh, it's interesting. I'm often interested when you see someone who, who, from one appearance to the next, as Bielsa had done, lost a lot of weight. What do you think? His time at Leeds, he had so much work to do that he didn't have time to exercise. <laughs> I mean, we're speculating here. Now, and listen, it's coming, coming from me, mm. a guy I, who, who doesn't have time to exercise, but you know. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it would be speculation, but I, mm. I think it was, it was probably a brutal job. And by the end, it was probably miserable and brutal. So mm. um, maybe he took to comfort eating. I don't know, but he looks much better now and it was good to see him. Well, I'm pleased for that. About. Yeah. He's another person who lives for the week, I feel. Right, yeah. It's starting a, starting a theme here. The more you say live for the week, it makes it, it, I feel, I hear like weak versus strong instead yeah. of, uh, you know, weak versus weekend. Nietzschean, isn't it? Living for the week, <laughs> yeah. There we go, okay. Anyway, back to the Ubermensch. Uh, congratulations to John Uriarte and Ernesto Valverde, who will be the new team at the top of Athletic Bill Barrel. So that's always interesting. Always always interesting also to see, uh, uh, before we move on, the kinds of ways in which potential presidents and coaches can campaign with the restriction of not being able to say, oh, we'll bring in this player or that player. I feel like, you know, the the other places that we hear about this a lot are Barcelona, Real Madrid, where the, uh, the, the presidents talk about the players that they will bring in or re-sign or whatever it is. Um, and of course, Athletic Bilbao have that transfer policy, which means that the presidents have to um, campaign on things that would ordinarily be far more boring, but uh, not at all in that context. So there we go. Very interesting stuff. A quick uh, jaunt now, Seb, if you won't mind, to the future of Dean Henderson. Mm. Because Dean Henderson, it sounds like he's joining Nottingham Forest on loan. I don't know if that has happened or not yet, but it certainly sounded like it when I wrote this bit down which I think if it does happen, is kind of an interesting trajectory. I've read something Carl Anker wrote about him recently. Um, and Carl Anker, essentially, I'm summarising, said that there were a few moments in the last 18 months related to, to Dean Henderson to cover. The first is that De Gea is picked over him in the 2021 Europa League final. That's the game that United lose on penalties. Um, and Dean Henderson actually had a... Yeah, so Dean Henderson actually had a better penalty record saving, not scoring, uh, than De Gea did. He'd also played about 10 of the games in the run-up to it that season because De Gea had, the, had the, a, bit of, a bit of leave from work. So he was injured out of the Euros immediately after that when he was potentially going to be a starter. And then he got COVID when he came back. And he never really had the opportunity to sort of grow back into his role because as soon as Rangnick arrived, he decided for whatever reason not to use him. And I think at that point, it really, it really did feel very much like it was 50-50 between who Dean Henderson and, and De Gea, who really would uh, take the role going forwards. So I think, uh, you know, Rangnick coming in, who's a coach who plays a style of football that may well have benefited from having a player like Dean Henderson, who is, who is more comfortable outside of the box, to not choose him is a bit, uh, you know, of a, a condemning blow, I suppose. And now he, he you know, apparently, as it sounds, is going back out on loan to another newly promoted Premier League side. It does feel like there's a, an alarming lack of progress during that time. Yeah, the Rannick thing, 
I've got a little bit of sympathy because that's a very difficult decision. Like it, it's never going to be 50-50 between someone like De Gea and Henderson because De Gea is one of the highest paid players in the world. And you drop him and that's a very, very big issue to deal with uh, straight off the bat. So it's not particularly comfortable. I feel like yeah. Dean Henderson, he had a very strange moment in 2019 when he went with England to the under 21 Euros and had a bad tournament and a lot of players had a bad tournament. And afterwards, it was known that Gareth Southgate had had a pretty dim view towards the attitude of some of those players. He'd gone out there with a kind of, we're very, very talented, we're going to win this tournament. I think they got bounced out by someone like, I don't know. They, they, they went out in the group stages, basically. They were pretty bad. And Dean Henson, he had that very good season at Sheffield United. Good shot stopper, really well suited to playing for a kind of, um, uh, they weren't a relegation um, struggler, but just he fit the profile of that team, like, Newly promoted, they had a lot of energy, they play very, very well. Have footballing centre backs, obviously, we've covered that in exhaustive detail. It's not that Dean Henderson's reputation has, has been ruined, it feels like he has to start again. Just because everything he did at Sheffield United doesn't really feel relevant anymore. Yeah. Um, and the world's kind of forgotten what made him a good goalkeeper because he was routinely excellent during that season. Had a couple of high profile mistakes. I remember one against Liverpool when he let in a one album goal, but good goalkeeper. I just think it's a, a really good example and a big old caveat for young goalkeepers at big clubs because I don't know, it's like understudying Manuel Neuer. It doesn't matter if he has a couple of bad games. It just doesn't like, because mm. he gets paid more. And if you drop him, it's not just a kind of a, an issue, a footballing issue. It becomes a social one. It becomes a debate in the newspapers. It becomes a, you know, one of those situations where everybody's got an opinion on it. And that is really difficult to handle. And and also, if you're Dean Henderson, do you want that happening around you? You're, goal, you're, you're playing golf for Man United, which is probably amongst the most scrutinised positions in world football. And you've got a debate about your value next to someone who, okay, he's had a downturn in his career. So he's improved a little bit over the last 18 months, but one of the best goalkeepers in the modern era. I don't think that's unfair to say about David De Gea. So it's, it's really hard. He just needs to go somewhere and play. So, you know, we can have a fresh set of memories of Dean Henson and a reminder of what makes him good. And I, I think also Forrest is a really smart choice for him if, if that goes through, because it's like, Forrest are one of those newly promoted teams who are almost in free hit territory because everyone's written them off already because um, everyone's decided they're not good enough regardless. Also, a lot of their fans are just happy to be back at this point and at least until probably the end of autumn will just enjoy the experience of being back in the Premier League again, rightly so. And so for Dean Henson to go into that environment instead of, let's be fair, pretty toxic situation at Man United where everything is bad and you know you you have the opportunity to be Harry Maguire for instance like you play mm. badly and then you become the world's most worst footballer just because yeah. that's what happens to people at Man United who don't perform and it's, yeah it's night and day between those two clubs now so um, yeah and I feel like I think it's really easy for goalkeepers to get lost especially young ones who aren't starting immediately like think about what happened to Jack Butland I know he got injured and he got injured playing for England, but look what happened to him afterwards. Like, it's kind of terrifying. Here's, here's someone like, we all just assume you're going to be England's number one one day and you're going to be the equal of players like uh, Thibaut Courtois and probably De Gea at some point. And yet, because you're in the wrong situation, all of a sudden the conversation around you completely changes and you become mm -hmm. kind of yesterday's man and I'll oh, find someone better. Like, you know, let's, let's, you know. It, Loris Carrius, huh? Loris Carrius. Yeah. Although a different case, but yeah, it's a good example. Like if you're in the wrong space at the wrong time and then bad moments are followed by long periods of inactivity, that becomes who you are. 
Mm. And you can't have that as a goalkeeper. Yeah. Okay. Well, best of luck to Dean Henderson on his future. Gareth Bale joining LAFC, John. Do you have anything to say about that? Because I don't. I have very few opinions on this. Sure. He's going to the World Cup with Wales and he will be playing in sunny Los Angeles, America, the United States of, you know, for uh, for six months. Ornstein says uh, it's a one year with an option to extend. An MLS season runs from around February to October. So it's quite interesting. He's joining halfway through there. Nice and optimal for his World Cup ambitions. There we go. Apparently there was a conversation with Cardiff as well. But who cares about that? He doesn't live for the week, does he? He doesn't. No, he lives for the weekend when he he plays football. Hmm. Yeah. Wayne Rooney is leaving Derby. I think this one was a little bit um, uh, predictable, probably, based on the, uh, the issues that Derby have had over uh, the, last, uh, the last couple of seasons and more concentrated to this summer. Um, Wayne Rooney, uh, one of the things he said leaving was, uh, personally, I feel the club now needs to be led by someone with fresh energy and not affected by the events that have happened over the last 18 months. I will remember my time at Derby with great pride and affection and would like to thank all my staff, players, and of course, the fans for their incredible support. I will never forget you and hope to see you all again in the near future. And in happier times. Happier times being the sort of hopeful thing there, John. Yeah, well, things are looking up for Derby, I say, mm. advisedly, um, because there is this potential buyer from a right, sure. local businessman, David Clowns. Buyer from another friar, you know? That's right. Friar Tuck. Um, but yeah, I think Wayne Rooney was was maybe lured in a little bit by Chris Kirshner. I think they sure. got on quite well. So was I. I followed that guy on Twitter. Did you? Yeah. Do you feel let down? Uh, I quite enjoyed watching him respond to people, <laughs> random people. Uh, but uh, to be honest, I had forgotten that had happened until you just uh, said that. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, But yeah, I think it, it feels a little bit like he was felt let down by Chris Kershamp. To be fair, why not? Yeah. <laughs> he did let them down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, things are looking potentially up for, for Derby. I say that advice. I, d- I sure. don't want to say, because no, we've said worry. this. It's I feel like we've said this so many times. We have said this before. It's confusing. We'll, we'll, we'll inform about what happens with Derby when it does happen. Wayne Rooney, though, he did uh, surprisingly well in very difficult circumstances. Uh, I think we've had this conversation before. I would say, um, uh, you know, uh, the public uh, awareness of Wayne Rooney sometimes casts him a little unfairly. He seems to be stereotypically the sort of player that you wouldn't imagine would become a great tactician or something because a player that plays with uh, plays with emotion and, and power and all the rest of it. But he seems to have done an, you know an awful lot of successful tweaking at Derby with a squad that doesn't have any players in it. They're four now, I think they just Is sold it four? one or something. Right. Okay, yeah. Um, I don't know too much about the tactics of, of Wayne Rooney, but I do think that he was very good motivationally. And I think mm-hmm. that's probably what they needed a lot of last season. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, with young players like that, I think you can get a long way with, with just geeing them up and, and keeping them going. You can get a long Wayne. A long Wayne. Okay, well, we'll uh, again talk about Wayne Rooney as and when he decides what his next steps will be. Taiwo Awanii. It's a Nottingham Forest. In 2021-22, let me tell you, John, Awanee scored 20 goals and assisted five times across 43 appearances in all competitions as he helped guide Union Berlin to a fifth-place finish, securing a spot in the Europa League. Yeah, I was watching that Europa League race quite keenly because I'm a SC Freiburg fan, so... Freiburg. Yeah, that's yes. right. I'm all too aware of Awanee's ability at scoring goals, unfortunately. Good, is he? Yeah, he's he's a good he's a good number nine as we were talking about before. He's, right. He he played back to goal. Um, he's uh, yeah he's he's a smart mover. He's he's very good on the ball. I think for someone who is 
a big chap so yeah I think it's, this is an exciting um, sort of transfer be interesting to see how it plays out I'm sure Seb has got lots of takes on this I just think it's really John says desperately (laughs) with him I think it's really important how he starts I think self-belief is really important I think he has to uh, if he can start quickly in in the Premier League and feel good about himself and feel like he belongs I think that would be really good but like the talent's there um, scores a lot of different types of goals Uh, link up plays pretty good I think he's exactly what Forrest need actually like a kind of multi-skilled dynamic forward um, who is very good who's performed really well for a team that don't enjoy a lot of the ball um, I'd have to look it up but I think Union averaged about 42-43% in the Bundesliga last season um, which shows just how good they are in transition and the counter-attack mm. and uh, yeah and you'd imagine um, I don't want to prejudge for us but you'd imagine they'll be playing a little bit further back this season and with considerably less of the ball so great job great signing very exciting Okay, look, congratulations to us, by the way. We've managed to get through all of these points with one final one to discuss, John. And that is, of course, Charlet de Catalara. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Who is a Belgian, young Belgian, 21? He I is believe. a Belgian, young Belgian. He's yes. a Belgian, young Belgian, 21, a bit of a nine. Talking about nines. Bit of a <laughs> but nine. he wears a, actually wears a really weird number, 60 or something. Does he? It's a very high number, yeah. Well, let me tell you this. Someone that you and I know whose opinion on football we respect greatly has described this player to me as the bee's knees. <laughs> I don't think he actually said that, but to, words to that effect. I think he may effect. have done, and I Maybe think it would have did. been very funny him saying it. The bee's knees. Yes, um, yes. Is he the bee's knees? What do you know about this chap? Because he's been, uh, he's a... Uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, rumoured to be connected to, to several clubs, Leeds being one of them in the in the Premier League, and a few on the European planes. Mm, yeah, he's an exciting player. So um, I have actually done a lot of scouting work on Charlotte Catalara because we were uh, we used to run a, another podcast where we would do a, a, a podcast called Autos List, where we'd look through potential players that Leeds could sign, mm. and we threw Charlotte Catalara in it. Uh, in that list we're not expecting anything to come of it sure uh, so it's been quite nice seeing him him sort of be linked it's probably because I can of see you Seb, I can see Seb just tutting away because he knows that he doesn't think that this is going to happen no no I, I'm tutting away because it just sounds like you try to rip off sensible transfers John on this <laughs> podcast imagine people making videos about players moving to another team that's John, our that, thing that if anyone else does like that IP we did me, that Joe. first like. any talking about transfers that aren't actually happening that's us yeah and I'll take you to an IP court. <laughs> I, I talked about Decatelara first, so does that mean I, I own him? It's like, it's like, it's like you're his dad yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you're his dad. I'll lend him to the to the TIFO podcast <laughs> for the rest of this podcast. Good, good. But yeah, what, really, what's your boy good at? Yeah, he's really exciting player. He's he's someone who I think people will assume is just an out and out nine because mm. he he's quite tall. He is often sort of touted as as a striker, um, but he, he I think he's someone he someone who likes to drop into deeper areas, pick the ball up, likes to get the ball in possession and and turn face the goal and he's really really creative player, good at, at little flicks passes through you're good at through balls mm. um very good at finding gaps in defenses likes to have a link up with uh, they've got quite a fun team at the moment bruges this is the team that he's out i don't think we mentioned that we should probably from, from club bruges club bruges yeah, yeah. um so noah lang is a, a player who's there who's been 
uh, in and out of the media recently as well but um, their link up has been it's mm. been really fun um, I watched a few clips of him actually playing for Belgium recently and he was played in a f- wide forward role there so he has the ability to drift out to the right uh, could play crosses in and, and interchange as well so yeah in terms of the, the areas he likes to get into again I mentioned the Lukaku video before but very similar he likes to drop into that right half space and, and sort of dictate dictate play a little bit from there so yeah what, what kind of ceiling are we talking about here I think pretty high yeah and I think the assumption is is that he needs a stepping stone club to mm. to jump into to, to really announce himself on the world stage okay and um, when you say pretty high are we talking about a kind you know like a Victorian townhouse high or a cathedral high uh, I am not someone who prides themselves on their talent ID so mm. I would be I'd be um, careful what I say and uh, it's always worth remembering that development is not a linear thing but the, mm. the, I think the the signs are promising he would he will be a, a, a big player one day is that, is that he's got the same hair as you Joe that's good you share a hair he's got the same hair as yeah, me it's very similar oh let yeah. me just look at a picture yeah. he he and Pat Bamford up front will look like two members from the set of Brideshead Revisited <laughs> I would suggest uh, he doesn't have the same hair as me he's just got hair People, that's what I'm talking to two guys without any hair who think that anyone with hair looks the same. Yeah. Come on, is there a we all know from the that? YouTube like, comments that the joke is that there's two, a couple of guys without much hair here. <laughs> that's and what we're Seb and I are always doing. Them. This we're like, yeah. oh, those guys, <laughs> those guys with, with their hair, like, walking they down look the street, the same. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And Seb's like, those guys with glasses. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you. I love you know one of my favourite. Uh, television shows is Curb Your Enthusiasm and Larry David does a lot about being bold and how he walks down the street when he sees another bold person they share a little nod is there really a community? Mm. I, I've never experienced that but what I have yeah. experienced is I was walking through the tube and someone had the same jumper on as me right. and we both went hey same jumper and, right. and we shared a, a moment of human was that it was one of those micro interactions that, that I know you love so well I do well, like too. those yeah that was it we literally just flew past was it this other. jumper here it was not this one no. what was, jumper was it was it? my puma jumper puma jumper and he was like hey right it was nice it was wouldn't yeah. it be great if we could find that person I don't know. Would it be great? It could be. Probably uh, not. The moment's over. It would be a good TikTok, like a good 10 seconds of you sure. know, bring him into the studio, wearing the top, obviously, and then, you mm. know, see what happened from there. Yeah. It could be great. I'd, lo- I'd, l- I'd love to know. That sounds interesting. <laughs> John McKenzie, thanks very much for today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed your pronunciations today. Oh, good. Thank you very much. And uh, Seb Stafford Bloor, a Dankeschön auf Wiedersehen. Vielen Dank, Herr Devine. Cheers. Yes, send my love to Germany. <laughs> um, specifically Hamburg. I will do. I will you do. know, yeah. yeah okay. Great stuff. Producer Don, thank you. Don uh, didn't emote at all then. That's <laughs> just, like, just as normal. See you awake. And uh, thanks uh, to uh, audio producer Adonis, or whatever freelancer it is that we get this week. We do appreciate all of your hard work. JJ's back from holiday next week, so he'll rejoin us. Uh, But in the meantime, plenty of hot vids to watch on TIFO and TIFO IRL. So go and uh, acquaint yourself with those. And uh, until next week, au revoir. (laughs) 